So I've been asked to speak this weekend about uh, the unique presentation of uh, Tsongkhapa concerning the tenant systems, assertions of voidness and selflessness, especially concerning the his presentation of the Prasangika view. And so I suppose the first question that we need to ask ourselves you know, is why would we want to study these four tenet systems? They're awfully complicated. But we need to remember that the only reason that the Buddha taught anything was to help all beings to overcome and get rid of suffering. So the four tenet systems must also be a uh, way of helping us to overcome suffering. Yes. The root cause for our suffering, difficulties in life, is uh, Buddha identified as being ignorance, which uh, I prefer to call unawareness. We are unaware, which means that we just don't know how we exist, how others exist, how everything exists. And we think that everything exists in a way which is just the exact opposite. It's the inverse of uh, how things actually do exist. And we believe that, and we don't know how things actually do exist. And we don't know that uh, the way that we understand things and perceive things is incorrect. The reason for that is because that's how our limited minds make everything appear to us. And we believe that these appearances and what it feels like to us, what it feels to be real and correct, that that corresponds to the actuality of how things do exist. Our unawareness, our confusion, another way of looking at it, then uh, we develop all sorts of disturbing emotions and disturbing attitudes. We would like everything to be the way that we want it to be. And of course, that never happens, so we get angry. We get greedy because we want it to be what I want it to be. You know, I want you to love me. And if you don't, then I'm very angry, I'm very disappointed, and we're clinging, you know, don't leave me, and so on, all this sort of stuff, because we don't understand how we exist, how the other person exists. And because of these disturbing emotions and disturbing attitudes, we uh, act in all sorts of compulsive ways. There's this compulsion to say something to the other person. Why don't you love me? Why don't you call more often, etc.? To act in certain ways. And that compulsiveness is what we call karma, the compulsiveness of our behavior. Yeah, we just do whatever comes to our head to do say whatever comes into our head to say. And as a result of this behavior, we create all sorts of problems and difficulties for ourselves and for others. We become unhappy when we don't get our way. We become happy when we do get our way, but that, of course, doesn't last because something else will happen and we don't get our way again. So that happiness is uh, uh, very uh, insecure. Unstable. And the worst thing is that we just perpetuate this behavior over and over again because of habit. So what we need to understand is what will get rid of the root cause of this whole cycle or syndrome 
if our minds are making things, our limited minds are making things appear in a way that doesn't correspond to reality, we need to understand how cognition works. In other words, how do we know things? How does, how does the mind work? And we need to uh, understand what's known as voidness. In other words, we need to refute our incorrect uh, assumption that things exist in the way that they appear. We have to refute what is actually impossible. Важно and understand that it's impossible that, for instance, uh, I should always get my way. That that is an absurd assumption because nobody can always get their way. Well, our minds are very uh, complex. And what we imagine is also uh, very complex. And uh, it's not easy to actually uh, uh, go deeply enough in the deconstruction of our misbeliefs to actually get rid of them completely. That's not easy. So what uh, we need to do, what Buddha recommended, was to go like peeling an onion layer by layer. But hopefully it's not going to make us cry. So we have these tenet systems that derive from uh, Buddha's teachings and more specifically from the great Indian Buddhist masters who uh, wrote commentaries on Buddhist teachings to actually uh, systemize these different uh, tenet systems. Uh, in India, all of these uh, tenet systems were upheld by different schools, different groups of people upheld one view, another view. Uh, at the great monastic universities, people studied all of them. It seems as though in India, they didn't form separate traditions like you have uh, the uh, Kargyu and Yingma, Galupa and Sakya in uh, Tibet. It wasn't quite like that. These are more like subjects that you study in school. Although in China, when uh, Buddhism came, because they brought only certain texts, each translator brought a, a, a big bag of texts with them, that uh, then they uh, developed some schools which didn't last very long, which were exclusively Chittimatra or exclusively Madhyamaka. That developed in China, but not in Tibet. Nevertheless, in Tibet, the way the Tibetans study these uh, uh, tenet systems, and this is uh, emphasized by uh, many of the teachers, is that uh, they present a graded path. Tibetans are very good at organizing the Indian teachings into uh, outlines and you know, levels and, and uh, systems of uh, graded stages. So this is the way that uh, we study these tenet systems is in a graded order and the benefit of them is that they help us to peel or deconstruct layer by layer going deeper and deeper what our misconceptions are about how we exist, others exist, and everything exists and how the mind works. And what is very important in uh, studying these is to realize that each of these systems is very, very helpful 
It's not that the lower systems are stupid and it's only, you know, who would believe that? Only Prasangika is correct. And for some people, some of us, some of the uh, so-called lower systems or, uh, early, or less sophisticated systems might be the most suitable for us in order to make progress. Might be a little bit too much to think in a more sophisticated way of a so-called higher tenant system. That's important to understand. We don't need to push ourselves, you know, that we have to go to the most sophisticated level of understanding, especially not to do it too quickly. What's also very important in studying these is to go in a graded order and not jump all the way to Prasangika from the beginning. Each uh, position, I mean the positions of each of the tenet systems is based on a refutation of the assertion of the immediately preceding tenet system. In other words, you have system one, and then the set, you know, Vibhashikas, and then the Sautrantikas say, well, it's not quite like that, so you have to understand this in order to see what's not correct about it. And then the Chittamatras will say the same thing, you know, well, what is it about the, you know, the, the Sautrantikas have it somewhat right, but what is it that needs to be refined there? And it goes like that, step by step, as Tsongkhapa emphasized very much based on uh, what Shantideva, Indian master, said was that uh, we really need to be very, very precise in identifying the object to be refuted in order to refute it. And the object to be refuted is based on the previous object to be refuted and so on. And it also is very helpful and I think quite necessary to work with each of these systems and not just uh, study them abstractly like you would in a metaphysics class in university, for example. And that means to take time to really analyze and to try to work out what would it be like to have this understanding that is asserted by this school and then the next school and so on. What are the implications of that? How would that affect my life? What difference would it make in terms of my confused behavior and understanding? And to do that requires quite a lot of time. И для того, чтобы мы смогли это сделать, нам понадобится много времени. Not just time in listening to lecture, but in actually sitting and reflecting and analyzing and working with this material. And we will find that uh, working with it, we will discover many very, very rich and uh, helpful insights into our own misinformed behavior, our own neurotic type of uh, syndromes. And we'll find some very, very helpful advice how to deal with that, how to deconstruct our misconceptions. We don't have time this weekend, any weekend, it would be much too short to actually go into a great deal of detail of what the uh, implications are on a personal 
practical level of each of these tenant systems. That takes quite a lot of time, although I'll try to give a few examples of the application of the ways of thinking of each of these systems. Хотя я попробую привести несколько примеров, каким образом мы можем применять воззрение этих систем. But our topic in consideration of the 600th anniversary of Tsongkhapa is uh, the unique points that uh, Tsongkhapa made concerning these systems. And as I mentioned, although we might think of these tenant systems primarily as uh, discussing progressively more sophisticated ways of explaining uh, voidness, they also explain uh, on several levels how the mind works. And these two are very, very much related to each other. Explanation of voidness, the explanation of how the mind works. And we can't really understand deeply the positions concerning voidness uh, unless we bring in as well the explanation of how the mind works. Because after all, ignorance is generated by the mind. So we need to understand how that comes about in order to remedy it. Tsongkhapa was a revolutionary. I think that's about the best word we can use for him. He studied and debated with masters from all the traditions at his time. And he was dissatisfied with uh, what he saw. The main problem was that there was quite a degeneration of ethics and morality, particularly in the monastic uh, institutions. And he was not only concerned with reinstating a more strict following of the monastic uh, uh, rules and vows, although very often that is one of the main things one associates with Tsongkhapa. But uh, he felt that the uh, current main understanding that uh, all conventional truth was false, that uh, this was undermining the uh, ethical standards of, this of the monastics of his time. If you assert that all conventional truth is false, and uh, take that quite literally and don't really understand fully the implications of that, you could deny cause and effect, which then means you can do anything and it doesn't matter. There's no result of your behavior. So that's a complete breakdown of ethics. So Tsongkhapa was quite unique in saying that understanding of voidness was not enough, that after the understanding of voidness, uh, in order to have the complete understanding you need to understand the compatibility of voidness and dependent arising. So in many different verses in his praises to dependent arising, he emphasized that uh, the understanding of voidness and the understanding that this arises from that, in other words, this effect from that cause, that these mutually support each other. Mm. This assertion that conventional truth is uh, false. We shouldn't think that uh, that, when understood correctly, means that there's no cause and effect. What he's pointing out is a 
misconception that could easily follow from that assertion. You see, each of these uh, tenet systems uh, is based on several Indian authors, Indian masters, and several of their texts. And some of them assert that position in one way, and some assert it in another way. Tsongkhapa follows one of them. These earlier masters followed another. So it's not that these uh, earlier Tibetan masters made this up, and they just didn't understand what the texts were saying. They are based on Indian sources. One of the main points of uh, contention between uh, Tsongkhapa and the earlier masters concerned the use of logic in uh, uh, Madhyamaka, what became known as the Svatantrika division of Madhyamaka, uh, used the type of logic that the other tennis systems also used, which is uh, uh, logic based on a syllogism, you know, a line of reasoning, very complex line of reasoning in uh, logic. Uh, and uh, Tsongkhapa said, well, not just Tsongkhapa, but Prasangaka basically said that uh, in these systems of logic, the elements that you're using, in other words, you're talking about, you know, sound is impermanent because it's produced or something like that, that because your assertion is based on what you are taking to be a truly established sound that you're arguing about or debating about truly established things. And we don't accept truly established things. So we don't have a common basis for uh, discussion. The Sangaka says that you Svatantrikas, you're arguing about uh, does the child of a woman who can't have children, is it a boy or a girl? And this is ridiculous because there is no such thing as a child of a woman who can't have children. So forget about your logic. You're talking about things that don't even exist, right? Is turtle hair black or yellow? I mean, this is ridiculous to debate about that. So Prasangika developed a different type of uh, uh, debate or logic, which is just based on pointing out the absurd conclusions that would follow from any assertion about turtle hair and this sort of stuff. Now, because of that, then the earlier masters in Tibet said that Prasangika doesn't make any positive uh, assert philosophical assertions concerning conventional objects, common sense objects. And Tsongkhapa said, no, they do. <laughs> Prasangika does make positive assertions. This was radical in his time to say that. And you can make a, a positive assertion without falling to the extreme of what's called absolutism. You know, the thing is absolutely there they are. The other traditions were saying, these earlier masters, that uh, uh, Prasangika just helped us by just pointing out the absurdities of uh, everything to go beyond conceptual thinking. Because this was really the main issue when it comes to gaining realization is how do you go from a conceptual understanding to a non-conceptual one?
this is the real, what should we say, the essence of the most difficult point in meditation. We have uh, two, you see the discussion was whether things exist in any of the four extreme ways. Truly existent, truly non-existent, both or neither. So I've just given them one, two, three, four. Uh, these are the four extremes they're known as. And what the other earlier masters were saying was that uh, actually understanding the voidness of any of these four, you know, of all these four, that actually, you know, this is, can only be understood conceptually. It's conceptual understanding that uh, there is no such thing as any of these four. And that the only way to go beyond the conceptual refutation of uh, these four extremes was to have a voidness which was beyond words and beyond concepts. Words and concepts, what is involved with conceptual cognition. So to be non-conceptual, you have to be beyond words and concepts. So voidness that was beyond that was the voidness that you could understand non-conceptually. This is the way that the other masters, many of them, not all of them, many of them formulated it. Some of these masters uh, uh, called this other voidness, but uh, the sutra level of other voidness, tantra level is something different. And some of them uh, called this uh, the uh, maha madhyamaka view. Maha means great madhyamaka view. So they made a third madhyamaka tradition besides Svatantrika and Prasangika. And Tsongkhapa pointed out in uh, Lamrim Chamo, the grand presentation of the graded stages of the path, it's on that uh, actually the way that these masters were asserting it was in the manner of a neither nor type of uh, presentation. It's neither one, nor two, nor three, nor four leaves open the possibility that it's something else. And Tsongkhaba said, no, 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 the refutation of these four extremes is not in terms of neither nor, but in terms of either or. In other words, there's only four possibilities. It's either this or that or that or that. There is no other possibility. And that uh, in refuting all of the, these four, that that can be known conceptually, but it can also be known non-conceptually. You don't have to assert another possibility, this uh, uh, voidness beyond words and concepts in order to have a non-conceptual cognition of the refutation of the four extremes. So this, uh, in order to get a deeper understanding of what Tsongkhapa is talking about here, which is actually, I mean, it requires a bit of thinking to digest this. But uh, it really requires understanding cognition theory and the difference between the old masters and Tsongkhapa in the understanding of cognition theory to see why Tsongkhapa asserted it this way. So we'll get to that in a 
hopefully a fairly simplified way of doing it that is understandable. But let's take a moment to just reflect and try to digest the difference between neither nor or either or. Is it an exclusive refutation that there's no other possibility? Or are we saying that uh, it's like, uh, I thought of an example in the car. I can't remember what the example was. Um, it would be like saying if there are four rooms in a house, Tsongkhapa says that, well, you know, you think somebody's in the house, they're either in this room one, two, three, or four. If they're not there, you know, they're not in the house. So and the others would say, well, actually, there's a hidden attic that you didn't know about, <laughs> and they're neither in any of these, neither in room one, two, three, or four. I agree with you, they're not there, they are. <laughs> In the attic. And Tsongkhapa says, no, no, there is no attic. That's unnecessary. There isn't it. Maybe that's oversimplifying it, but gives you the idea. Now, to understand Tsongkhapa's presentation of the correct view of selflessness and voidness in the tenant systems, we have to understand that uh, voidness is a refutation of an impossible way to establish the existence of something. It's not simply a refutation of an impossible way in which something exists. Очень you важно know, провести How do you prove? What proves that something exists is different from saying, how does it exist? Because a certain way of existing is impossible. It's phrase by phrase. We'll do a phrase by phrase because it's complex. Because a certain way of existing is impossible, then it's impossible to establish that something exists by claiming it's because it exists in that impossible way. That's not easy. But let's give an example. An impossible way of existing is, uh, I'm the most important person in the world. I should always have my way. So to claim that what establishes me as a, uh, you know, exists. I exist because I'm the most important person in the world. Well, that's ridiculous because there is there, nobody's the most important person in the world. They should always have their way. Yeah. Right? You follow that. Понимаете? I think that it's possible to be the most to have your own, own way, that things always go the way that I would like it to be. That's how I exist. I'm the one that has that happen to me. And that establishes that I exist because I always get what I want. Well, but nobody always gets what they want, do they? So this is, think about that. <laughs> it's a diff difficult point. It's very subtle. It's a very subtle point. How do I prove that I exist? What establishes, what demonstrates, what proves that I exist? You know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Does that prove that I exist? Cogito mm. ergo sum, I think, therefore ah, I exist. Right. Does the fact that I think establish that I exist? I mean, this is 
Western philosophy thought about this problem as well. What proves that I exist? I get a certain number of likes for my Instagram posts. That proves that I exist. If I didn't get likes, I don't exist. I mean, this is silly, isn't it? What establishes that I exist? And I can only truly establish that I exist if everybody on the planet likes my post of what I ate for breakfast this morning. I mean, come on. <laughs> so we are refuting an impossible way of existing, but the main point is that we're refuting the way of establishing that I exist in this impossible way. Now, why is this significant? Uh, it's significant for understanding Tsongkhapa's unique presentation of a prasangika assertion, which is that uh, all validly knowable phenomenon can only be established in terms of mental labeling them with categories and designating them with words. We can only, remember, think about that. They can, their existence can only be established, way of establishing it, in terms of mental labeling designation with words. Thus, we can easily misunderstand the, his assertion as meaning that all conventional ex phenomenon exist only as what are mentally labeled with categories and designated with words. See the difference? You can only establish their existence in terms of mental labeling as opposed to their existence is only what is mentally labeled. Because if you misunderstood Tsongkhapa as saying that uh, things only exist as mental labels, as what's mentally labeled, then the absurd conclusion would follow that all conventional phenomena are merely the product of conceptual process of mental labeling. Right, so if I, you know, am only what, you know, is mentally, you know, if I'm only something mentally labeled as me, which is conceptual, all I have to do is stop labeling, and I don't exist anymore. This is not Tsongkhapa's intended meaning. All right, the thing is that uh, you can understand, I mean, Tsongkhapa doesn't, speak, I mean, at least I haven't seen him speaking explicitly about this, but you can understand this if you look very, very carefully at the Sanskrit and Tibetan words that are being used. Then you understand what they're talking about. There's one term that could be understood in two ways. This is where the problem is. In our entire discussion of these tenet systems, we will look at them in terms of what are impossible ways of proving that things exist of establishing that things exist. Like, I think, therefore I am. I get likes for my posts, therefore I am. These ways of establishing that we exist that really aren't conclusive. Okay. Because, I mean, you have to understand that if you think that, uh, you know, I can establish my, my true existence if I get so many likes, then you put all your effort into getting those likes. And every day you have to post, you know, a picture of your breakfast as if the world really cares what I ate for breakfast. But I'm the most important, so everybody wants to know what I had for breakfast, of course. I will share it with everybody.
Uh, but and then you're frustrated yeah. because, of course, not everybody cares. Not everybody likes. So what? Well, maybe they'll like tomorrow's breakfast. You know, we try all these strategies which are doomed to failure in order to somehow make me secure, right, that I exist. What does that mean? I'm secure. I exist. You know, ah, here I am. And our strategies can't possibly work because they're based on something which is impossible. Okay, one more thing that we have to understand is that uh, the prasangika refutation of self-established existence, that's sometimes translated as inherent existence. And to understand that, we need to understand the distinctions between the imputation of a person on the five aggregates, the mental labeling of the category person on the imputation of a person, and the designation of the word person on the category person. И затем наименование с помощью слова личность поверх категории личности. Итак, следующий слайд. Okay. Now, self-established existence is defined only within the context of mental labeling with categories and designation with words. Итак, so, if we talk about imputation, если говорить, mind you, I'm, I made up words for, you know, distinct words for these three. It's not so easy in many languages. When we talk about imputation, we're talking about the imputation of uh, things on a basis. So we have what's called uh, non-congruent, I mean, it's a horrible word, uh, <laughs> non-congruent affecting variables. These are things, to put it very simply, which are not static. In other words, they change from moment to moment. And they are not a form of physical phenomenon, and they're not a way of knowing something. And examples of those are impermanence, uh, aging, for example. I think aging is a good example that uh, um, we can use to understand this. These are things that you can actually know non-conceptually, not just conceptually. You know them both ways. When I look at somebody, when you look at somebody, you can see that they've aged. They're not a baby. They've obviously aged. We don't have to see, you know, their entire life all at once and then have a concept of aging, although we could have a concept of aging. But you can directly see that, oh, you know, you've aged since last time I saw you. Or breaking. You can see the glass smash on the floor and you can directly see the glass broke. You don't have to have a concept of, you know, breaking in order to uh, see that oh, it broke. So, uh, so Trantikos would say these are objective things. So Trantikos сказала бы, что это объективные явления. Okay, those are imputations on a basis for imputation. There are a few static phenomenon, things that don't change, 
like uh, the like space uh, well and that's complicated but let's say just space uh, is an imputation on something as well that can be seen non-conceptually in simple language space is talking about there is nothing there is an absence of anything obstructing this watch from ex occupying three dimensions, right? I mean, I can put, no matter where I put the watch, there's nothing blocking it from occupying three dimensions. That's what space means in Buddhism. Вот как в буддизме понимается пространство. And you can see that. И вы можете его видеть. So uh, these are the imputation. And it's not to be confused with mental labeling and designation. Those are conceptual processes. Mental labeling is with categories. You know, like the category dog that, you know, all different kinds of breeds of dog fit into and all individual animals fit into. That's an object category. And then there are audio categories. Like the sound of the word dog, no matter what voice it's set in, no matter what volume, no matter what accent, it's all the, we can understand, it's all this, the, the word dog, this person is saying. It's a category, fits into all these individual items, fit into that category, otherwise understanding speech is impossible. And that object category is also the... Uh, meaning signified by the, by the audio category. What is the, you know, that category, you know, the sound of the word, you know, the, the category of the sound of the word dog. I mean, it's just a sound, you know, the category of all these sounds. It, refer, it has a meaning, and the meaning of the objects, you know, dogs. And then designations are with words, names and words, and that's only knowable conceptually. We give a, a name, it's basically a sound that we decide is a name, and we apply it, we designate it to this category. This category is going to be known as dog, or the king decided, or whatever, that this is what we're going to call it. Computer, I mean, how do they come up with the word computer, or server, or any of these words? Somebody decided that this is what we're going to call all these machines. So... All of that is conceptual, and in conceptual cognition, with a category or uh, you know or a or a word, you have not only the basis for the mental labeling of the category and the basis for the uh, designation of a word, but you have the referent object of it. This you do not have an imputation of aging or a person. So we have, you know, all these parts, you know, the, 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 the legs and the head and uh, the wagging tail and all of that, and the barking, blah, 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 all of that. And we have this category dog. And what does that category refer to? It refers to a dog on the basis of this thing over here <laughs> that's making this noise and wagging its tail. So... What establishes, I mean, 
I don't want to go into too much depth here. We'll go into the depth later on. But uh, this is very important to understand that when we refute self-established existence, when Prasangika refutes that, what they're refuting is that there is a referent thing, that there's something that truly exists out there that is holding up that referent object. In order to understand this, we're going to have to go step by step by step through the uh, tenant systems. I'm just introducing the essential point that is going to be problematic in the, uh, what the old masters asserted and what Tsongkhapa refuted. A referent thing is like in a theater, when you have a piece of scenery, when you have some piece of wood, diagonal piece of wood behind it that's holding it up. So Tsongkhapa is saying, I mean Prasangika is saying, that the only way you can establish that something exists is that, that there are such things as dogs is because we have agreed there's a, a category or a concept of dog and it refers to something, right? It refers to dogs, what are conventionally known as dogs, conventionally existent dogs. And what the, uh, the other, the lower tenants asserted was that, that that's not enough, you know, I mean, they have different positions about this, but they're all uh, in common saying, well, but there's actually something on the side of these animals that holds up that referent object. You know, a little label in them that says, I'm a dog, something like that. How would you know that that's a dog if you didn't have the category dog and the word dog? Откуда мы бы знали, что это собака, если бы у нас не было категории собака и не было бы слова собака? You know, <laughs> you have, let's say you've never seen a mongoose, and all of a sudden there's this animal here, and, uh, well, does it, I mean, if just looking at it, is there something, if you look really closely, there's a little engraving on it that says, I'm a mongoose? What's a mongoose? Well, there's category mongoose, and there's the word mongoose, and it refers to some type of animal. <laughs> and are there such things as mongooses? Yes. This isn't a dog. This isn't a bird. It's a mongoose. Other people would agree, would know what mongoose looks like. But the self-established existence means that there's a referent thing out there that really is a mongoose, you know, without, you know, independent of anything, uh, is a mongoose. No, That's some, the refutation. Some of the cousins Reference such... thing, backing up the referent object. As I said, we will look at this much more closely as we go through the tenant systems, but the important point now that we need to understand is that this is only talking about mental labeling with, with categories and designating with words which occur in conceptual cognition. We're not talking about imputations. 
I can see that this object broke when it smashed on the floor. I can see that. But that it is a computer, I can't see that. Is it a computer that smashed? Yes. What's well, a computer? What establishes that there are such things as computers? Well, there's a word, there's a concept, and it refers to something. Right? So there's the difference. What can you actually see? And what is part of a conceptual process? So this will underlie this understanding this difference will underlie our discussion as we go on. So Prasangika explains, you know, how you establish things exist not because, you know, they're standing out there with a, a label on them saying, you know, what I am, but uh, only in terms of what is described as dependent arising. So we will approach this step by step, deepen our understanding as we go through the tenant systems on the weekend. So what are the main points that we've covered? We've covered that uh, Tsongkhapa asserts that Prasangika, just because they use a different type of logic than the other schools, of pointing out absurd conclusions. That doesn't mean that Prasangika doesn't assert something positive. You know, how do you actually establish that things exist? Prasangika asserts that the full understanding of voidness is when you understand that it is compatible with and dependent arising, and it makes dependent arising possible. Because things dependently arise, they are void of self-established existence, and because they're devoid of self-established existence, they dependently arise. And by pointing out the difference between an either-or argument or a neither-nor argument, then uh, Buddha, uh, Tsongkhapa asserts that uh, the Prasangika understanding of voidness is enough that it can be understood conceptually and non-conceptually because it's an imputation. What we were talking about can be known non-conceptually. It's not that, you know, any refutation that we have in Madhyamaka is just conceptual and we have to go to a, you know, another type of voidness which is beyond words and concepts in order to have a non-conceptual cognition of voidness and get rid of ignorance. So Tsongkhapa refutes that. And in order to understand that voidness itself can be understood non-conceptually, we have to understand that it's an imputation. Not a mental, there is a mental label of the category of voidness and there is the word voidness, but voidness itself is an imputation. And it could be known non-conceptually. Because it's an imputation. So when we say that uh, you can only uh, establish the existence of something, like a dog, we were saying, in terms of what a mental label and a designation refers to, that's only how do you establish that it exists. It's not merely you know, a, uh, something that is just in a conceptual process. 
just known in a conceptual process. So these are the main points that uh, we've covered. So take a moment to try to digest that, and then we have a few minutes for questions. Okay. Now, I think it's important not to get discouraged by this material. This is a very artificial situation in which we're trying to cover everything in one short weekend. This is a lot of material. It's not really fair to uh, expect that we're going to be able to understand and follow everything because there's just too many points and each point is difficult. But I think the point of this uh, weekend, the benefit that uh, can come from this is that we get a, an outline of how to approach point by point in a graded order our understanding of the positions of these tenet systems regarding voidness and cognition theory so that we can then go back slowly, slowly in our classes and deal with this point by point in a logical order that will help us to understand deeper and deeper. And rather than finding the study of these tenet systems as something which is frightening because it's uh, difficult and complex, you'll find it really exciting and fantastic because uh, it uh, reveals deeper and deeper insights that we can get into uh, our misunderstanding of what goes on in life, in our life. It's very, very helpful when you go deeper into it and understand the implications of what they're saying in terms of our own behavior and attitudes. To give you an idea, I was teaching this in Berlin, where I live, to my small little class that I have at my home. And we have covered in 35 classes only Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, and Chittamatra. We haven't gotten to Madhyamaka yet. And that's 35 classes. This is the way to do it. So it's only in English now. Eventually, I'm sure it will uh, be available in Russian. So this material is really fantastic stuff to work with. Okay? So we really don't have that much time. Maybe one or two questions. We'll try to make time for questions uh, in the uh, shorter breaks after lunch. When people's attention span is a little bit low. Yes. One brave person. What the question is, what in this uh, topic is challenging personally for you? Maybe it will not be so easy to understand, 
but is there something that you yourself find really challenging now at your current uh, point of understanding? I think that, well, I mean, there have been many, many very helpful insights that uh, I have had personally in my own life dealing with this uh, material. If you're asking what specific point am I working on now, that's your question. It has a, it deals with the uh, more complex understanding of what I was uh, indicating in our slide about uh, mental labels, uh, basis for labeling, and the uh, referent object, and understanding that in conceptual cognition, well, I better do it step by step. I, in conceptual cognition, each of these elements is actually a, uh, it's it is more specified in terms of what's called an isolate or a specifier. Each of them is actually nothing other than itself. In other words, you can't specify anything directly in terms of what it is. It's only in terms of exclusion of everything that it's not. And this is how, what words mean, you know, what is involved with words. So when you understand that conventional things are just what words and categories refer to, then you see everything in term, and you can't specify anything other than being able to say, well, it's what's excluded, what, you know, what's left over when you've excluded everything that it's not. So you can't actually pinpoint anything. Then you see that everything is just a huge web of dependent arising on parts, causes, conditions, uh, you know, of all these different factors and what words refer to. There's nothing on the side of, of everything that's dividing it, these boundaries. So, for example, I uh, am working on this uh, Study Buddhism project, my website. Now I have a task which is enormous, absolutely enormous, dealing with the glossary. Just the first step is 3,278 English terms, Dharma terms, that I need to either edit the definition or give a definition of. That's only step one. There are many, many steps. Uh, and I'm 74, and there are maybe 100 years' worth of work that uh, I would be the best one suited to be able to do it on this project. And although I might be passionate about it, and I, that's all that I think about and do most of the time, I'm not uptight about it at all. Because project and glossary and <laughs> definitions and 
age, and you know, all these other things. I mean, there's nothing on the side of dependent arising that is establishing them as things that I can then be uptight about. But Everything I'm will happen in terms of causes and conditions, and you just do what you can do, and don't make a big deal out of anything. Just do it. And because voidness is to be understood in terms of dependent arising, then I try to do all the causes and conditions that will enable me to do this work. So I do CrossFit-style workout three times a week. Tremendous amount of physical exercise. That keeps me healthy, keeps me, my mind clear. So dependent arising in order to do this project and to live as long as possible with a clear, healthy body and mind to do it. And not be uptight about it. So thinking more and more deeply about a category as nothing other than itself and an object is nothing other than itself and the defining characteristic is nothing other than itself and the uh, basis for labeling is nothing other than itself. This uh, um, is deepening my appreciation of uh, uh, voidness, meaning dependent arising and vice versa. That's what I'm working on presently. You asked what I was doing, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Somebody who is suited to understand voidness is often defined as somebody who absolutely loves to think about it. You gotta have to love it to actually stick with it and go deeper and deeper. If you don't love thinking about it and analyzing, you're not gonna get anywhere. Because it's difficult. And it's true that uh, uh, the understanding arises dependently on building up positive force, so-called merit. Absolutely true. Because when you're only thinking about me, 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 and my problem and like that, your mind is very closed, narrow. And when you're thinking of helping others and doing things with, uh, for others, sort of compassion style, your mind is open. Your heart is open. When your mind and heart are open, you can understand more easily. You're not, you don't have these mental blocks. That's why His Holiness always emphasizes compassion. И вот почему Его Святейшество всегда подчеркивает важное сострадание. Это ключ. Спасибо. Мы заканчиваем посвящением заслуживания. Спасибо.